GU Connect is an initiative of Core2Ed, supported by an independent educational grant from Bayer. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' academic institution or the rest of the GU Connect group. For expert disclosures on conflict of interest, please visit the GU Connect website. Hello, and welcome to this podcast series on radiopharmaceuticals for prostate cancer. I'm Dr. Tanya Dorf, a medical oncologist from the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. And I'm here today with Dr. Philip Koo, Division Chief of Diagnostic Imaging at the Banner MD Anderson Cancer Center in Arizona. So today we're going to talk about radiopharmaceuticals and their use in prostate cancer. In the past six years, we've seen FDA approval of three novel radiopharmaceutical therapies. Radium-223 for bone metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, lutetium-177 dotatate for neuroendocrine carcinomas, and iodine-131 MIBG for malignant pheochromocytoma and paraganglioma. Radiopharmaceuticals and theranostics are now being explored in multiple tumor types, such as prostate, colorectal, lung cancer, amongst others. Philip, perhaps you could give us all an overview to explain what radiopharmaceuticals are and why they are becoming increasingly important. Great. Thanks, Tanya. So when we think about uh, radiation, therapeutic radiation, I like to put it into two different buckets. There's sealed sources of radiation, and then there are the unsealed sources of radiation. So the sealed sources of radiation are what we think about when we think about radiation oncology and external beam radiation. When we think about unsealed sources of radiation, we're really talking a lot about radiopharmaceuticals. And these are drugs that we typically inject directly into the venous system, or potentially they can be ingested orally like radioactive iodine. Once they're administered, again, usually intravenously, they circulate throughout the body uh, and they ideally target a specific process or a specific receptor. And this can be done in a variety of ways. You could have certain molecules that just target a certain um, molecule, or you could have various combinations of radioisotopes with small molecules that might target something like PSMA or um, the, a somatostatin receptor, uh, such as what we've seen with Dotatate. Great. So as you know, today we're planning to focus on the alpha emitter, radium-223, Philip, perhaps you can tell us a bit about how radium-223 works in prostate cancer. So radium-223 is interesting because it is an alpha particle that falls in the periodic table of elements in the same column as calcium. So basically, it works very similar to calcium. So radium will localize to the, the bone matrix very avidly. So in prostate cancer, obviously, patients with bone metastatic disease, we can leverage that physiologic aspect of radium-223 to our advantage. The fact that radium-223 is an alpha particle emitter also works to our advantage because these are typically higher mass uh, particles, a helium nucleus, that has a high linear energy transfer. So the amount of energy that it emits is much higher than our typical beta emitters which then leads to a greater proportion of double-stranded DNA breaks, uh, which has a greater anti-tumor effect. The other advantage of these higher mass particles is the fact that they do not travel further a distance. 
So the amount of non-target radiation is actually much smaller with these alpha particles compared to beta emitters. So the negative effect that you might have on normal marrow cells is actually much less with these, uh, with these alpha particles. So Tanya, as we know, radium-223 was approved in 2013 based on the landmark trial ALSIMCA. Can you tell us a little bit more about this trial? Sure. This was a randomized trial of men with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer who had symptomatic bone metastases. So there were 921 patients, and they were randomized to either radium-223, uh, which was given intravenous once a month for six doses, or a placebo. And that was added on top of best supportive care. So patients were allowed to continue some of their older antigen receptor targeted therapies. There wasn't really a lot of usage of abiraterone and enzalutamide back then. And so the trial wasn't designed the way we think of trials now, where is it pre-abiraterone and enzalutamide? Is it post one agent? Is it post both agents? Um, really, the focus was on chemotherapy and patients were allowed to have prior docetaxel, but this was not required. The primary endpoint of Alsimca was overall survival. The major secondary endpoints included the time to the first symptomatic skeletal event. So this is different than what we hear of as skeletal related events or SREs, where, you know, just a fracture on an image counts. Um, these really were patients feeling pain, needing radiation, needing an intervention. They also looked at, of course, uh, safety and changes in PSA and alkaline phosphatase. The trial population was really representative of what we see in our practices. The median age was 71, and I like to note that there were patients in their 90s who were treated. The majority of patients, about 60%, had received docetaxel, and any number of bone metastases uh, over uh, two was allowed, and so there were 10% of patients who had super scans, uh, and close to a third had greater than 20 bone metastases. The median baseline PSA was 146, and the range was all the way up to 14,000. Alsimca was positive for its primary endpoint of overall survival. There was a 30% reduction in the risk of death with radium-223 compared to placebo. So that's really important when we think about this agent that we are looking not just at something that's palliative, but we can categorize it the same way we categorize our other life-extending therapies. There was also a significant delay in the time to the first symptomatic skeletal event from about 10 months to over 15 and a half months. When we look at the subgroups, all of the subgroups uh, showed a consistent effect in terms of the overall survival benefit. Although the men with the lower number of bone metastases, less than six, did have a wider confidence interval. Um, so there was no difference related to prior docetaxel or opioid pain medication use. And I raise that because a lot of people think of this, again, as palliative. We need to be on narcotics for the pain in order to qualify. And while that is an indication, it's not the only indication. If symptoms from bone metastases can be more subtle. So, you know, when you ask a patient, are you having pain? They might say no. If you ask them, are you sleeping well or are you still golfing? They might say, no, I can't really do that anymore because it's uncomfortable. So you know, we have to open our minds and probe a little bit deeper to understand whether patients are having symptoms from their bone metastases. When you look at treatment discontinuation, the rate was 16% on radium-223 and 21% on the placebo arm 
Also for serious adverse events, there were 47% with radium-223 compared to 60% on the placebo arm. And this essentially tells us that much of the adverse effect that a patient might experience with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer is being driven by the cancer itself. Great. Thank you, Tanya. So I remember looking back at the approval, and it was so exciting from a nuclear medicine perspective because this had that overall survival benefit. And for nuclear medicine physicians, we were so focused on strontium and samarium, which you know had that improvement in bone pain. But this radium-223, I think this took these radiopharmaceutical therapies to another level, which was exciting for our field, especially since we can now benefit patients from that OS perspective. Can you talk a little bit more about that safety profile? Obviously, safety is very important, and uh, I believe this is one of the strengths of radium-223. Yeah, and I'm, I'm curious um, to hear your thoughts as well about how the fact that it's an alpha particle affects the safety, uh, because I remember back when we were using things like samarium, you know, a super scan was a contraindication to use uh, that agent because there was considerable collateral damage to the bone marrow. So we know with radium-223 that most of the dose does get deposited in the bone. And the main side effect that I see in my patients uh, is diarrhea, which fits with the fact that the second highest amount of radiation ends up clearing through the large intestine. Um, The other side effects that can be seen in, you know, more than 10% of your patients are nausea, vomiting, um, peripheral edema. There can be anemia, there can be cytopenias. Um, and it's important to note that people really need to have a good enough hemoglobin to start radium in order to go through it successfully. So if your patient's hemoglobin is below nine, it's just unlikely that they'll um, get through their six doses. You know that the question about, you know, the safety for, for me, it wasn't surprising because alpha particles, they travel maybe micrometers after they sort of lodge in the bony matrix with the beta emitters. The, the radiation actually goes millimeters in distance. So it's sort of orders of magnitude difference with regards to distance, which then wasn't surprising because, again, a lot of those healthier cells in the marrow that might be close by aren't affected with the alpha emitter, but they would be negatively affected by those beta emitters. So, yeah, but obviously we needed to see the data, and I think the data um, showed that it was very safe, so it was very encouraging. So when it comes to radium-223, I think the mechanism of action is relatively unique, and it's one of the strengths of this drug. And I think that led to the idea that this could be used in combination with other drugs, uh, which led to some trials and a lot of excitement in that area. Could you give us some updates uh, regarding radium-223 in combination with other treatments for metastatic CRPC? Yeah, you're right. When we think about radiation for prostate cancer, we almost always think of using androgen deprivation therapy together with it. And so it made sense to try radium-223 in combination with some of our newer, stronger androgen-targeted agents. ERA-223 was a randomized study using radium-223 in combination with abiraterone acetate and prednisone. So unfortunately, uh, there was some surprises that came out of the study in that uh, there was not an improvement in the symptomatic skeletal event-free survival Um, And in fact, they saw some increased frequency of bone fractures compared to placebo. However, it looked that if you were receiving bone supportive treatment, uh, such as a bisphosphonate or denosumab, that this substantially protected against fracture. 
And these fractures, as it turns out, were occurring not in metastatic sites, but were more related to osteoporosis. I don't know how you think about that, Philip, and how that fits with where the energy is going with radium-223. You know, the radium-223 localizes to all the bony matrix. It localizes more uh, where there are bone metastases, just because the bone surface area in those areas due to the destruction by the prostate cancer cells is greater. Um, so actually, from my perspective, I thought there might be a greater fracture, greater number of pathologic fractures. But the fact that there wasn't, I think, is telling us that, you know, maybe the radium that's depositing in normal cells on top of the fact that these patients might be osteoporotic or uh, on other drugs that are decreasing their bone mineral density has an additive effect that led to these fractures. But you're, as you mentioned, it's so encouraging to know that there's a relatively straightforward intervention that pretty much eliminates that bone fracture risk with denosumab or zoledronic acid. That's right. And so when the findings from ERA-223 became public, the ongoing PEACE-3 trial, which is testing radium-223 in combination with enzalutamide, uh, they stopped. Their data safety committee took a look and they saw a similar trend with increased fracture. So they implemented mandatory bone supportive therapy. And with this, uh, they found that that increased risk was completely eradicated. So any patient I start on radium-223, I'm making sure that they're on a bone support agent. And you know what? I was at, uh, yeah, I agree. I think every patient receiving radium-223 needs that bone protection I was shocked. And, you know, when we think about why this happened, you know, I think there are a lot of different theories out there. But this idea of starting radium with, you know, one of these abiraterone or enzalutamide simultaneously, which is what I believe happened in these trials versus the layering approach, I think there is something there uh, that needs to be explored. But, you know, I think physiologically, there must be some response. And from a nuclear medicine perspective, we know that there is a flare response with the abiraterone. So I wonder if there's some negative effect that's occurring when you started the two drugs together, as opposed to a layering approach, which showed a lot of good results, especially from that expanded access trial that I think Fred Saad published early on that showed that patients who were on Abby with radium tended to do better. Well, I always assumed that was in part because you were controlling extra osseous metastases, right? To me, that was sort of a no-brainer. If you've got some lymph nodes and some bone metastases and you use radium-223 together with abiraterone, you're kind of covering both sites of metastatic disease. But I think that it has been a real question is, is there a difference when you start both drugs simultaneously versus when you layer? So we're actually lucky to be joined by a guest today, one of our other GeoConnect members, uh, Dr. Neil Shore from the Carolina Urologic Research Center, who presented a study asking that exact question about layering versus concurrent use. Neil, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. You've been involved in a number of real-world analyses involving radium-223. Can you tell us about some of these studies and the key findings? Yes, um, radium-223, as, as you've already discussed, has a, this rather unique mechanism of action. It's the only uh, currently approved radiopharmaceutical with life prolongation, and, and I believe you've reviewed the LSIMCA data. Uh, when we saw combination trials such as ERA-223 and the combination of concomitant use of radium and abiraterone acetate and prednisone, 
uh, we saw an increase in fractures. Uh, what occurred to myself and many others is the potential that starting two drugs simultaneously, such as an AR pathway inhibitor, abiraterone acetate, or even enzalutamide with radium-223, would have a potential deleterious effect in the bone uh, environment, uh, the bone milieu. And by that, what we see with uh, uh, androgen receptor pathway inhibitors is we see tumor flare. And we saw tumor flare, particularly in the bone environment, and, and thus the, the, the concept of why we developed uh, the 2 plus 2 methodology for recognizing and avoiding uh, tumor flare uh, etiologies. And because of this, uh, I thought it was important, as of others, uh, Niraj Agarwal and many other investigators, who've looked at the concept of layering uh, therapies that we want to use together. And by layering, I don't know that we're really confident that the delay in combining is uh, affected by waiting a month or, or two months or 90 days, three months. But that's what we did in two open-label studies. We did what is described as a concurrent versus a layered approach. And in the layered approach, we allowed patients in one open-label study to receive abiraterone acetate. The majority of our 44 patients enrolled received drug 60 days or longer before getting a six-month course of approved label radium. And we did a similar study, open-label, single-arm with enzalutamide combining with radium. So patients were not started simultaneously, but were rather layered. And essentially what we found uh, was a, a low level of, of pathologic fractures. We also had no other untoward adverse events that were uh, not recognized in the phase three trials. Now, I thought these were, these were also started uh, before uh, the ERA223 data was uh, released. So, uh, you know, in combination with our findings and others and looking at real world data, for example, uh, what we've presented at ASCO-GU, the Reassure study, uh, which is uh, in submission for publication, we looked at a lot of real-world data to understand how are our colleagues uh, utilizing therapy. Um, and what we've been able to uh, ascertain uh, in a database of almost 1,500 patients uh, globally collected is that the use of radium-223 uh, on label um, and this is really one of the largest um, uh, studies to date, 1,465 patients reviewed. We didn't find any new safety signals, and many of these patients were receiving concomitant therapy. Uh, almost you know, 40% were receiving combinations uh, with some other form of therapy, and that could have included, in the majority of cases, an androgen receptor pathway inhibitor such as ab abiraterone or enzalutamide. The, the other thing we found uh, in this Reassure uh, uh, data set was that the median overall survival was very consistent with what we saw in the ALSIMCA trial. The other kind of real interesting thing is that we see some differences globally and by specialty as to when radium is initiated. It seems that in, in parts of the world and with urologists, they tend to uh, use radium-223 prior to chemotherapy 
Uh, more medical oncologists will use it afterwards. We also looked at secondary primary malignancies, and we didn't see any increase in secondary malignancies consistent with the data that was seen uh, with the Alsimka trial. Well, that's really reassuring to hear. I just wanted to ask you whether these real-world analyses that you're describing uh, took a look at the use of bone-supportive agents, because we were surprised about the fact that not every metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer patient with bone metastases seems to receive bone-supportive agents. I think that's an excellent um, uh, question and an excellent observation. Uh, I, I know we saw in ERA-223 that patients in both arms, combination or monotherapy, did better if they received a bone health agent a bisphosphonate or a, a, a rank ligand monoclonal antibody. And clearly that data was overwhelmingly established with uh, PEACE-3. And un unfortunately, you're absolutely right. Uh, even in our open label study, when we were doing our phase two, combining uh, Abby with radium, Enzo with radium, it was done at about six different sites. The use of bone health agents routinely was about 60%. I know in looking at um, recent data from, from the Phoenix uh, uh, presentation uh, led by Oliver Sarter, uh, the use of bone health agents was also similarly uh, about 60%. And, and frankly, it, it should probably be closer to, uh, you know, almost 100%, uh, you know, if, uh, if in, uh, assuming no problems with access or, or uh, contraindications to an antiresorptive. Yeah, what do you think are some of the reasons um, people may gravitate towards or away from radium or towards or away from bone support? Anything you hear from your colleagues out there? Yeah, there's a there's a, a lot of different reasons, and I think um, you know, for many in the medical oncology field, they still are much more comfortable uh, using radium after docetaxel or ataxane, particularly in the MCRPC arena. I, for one, think it's really better used if you find that window prior to using docetaxel in MCRPC. So typically, either layering with an, an androgen receptor pathway inhibitor, uh, because you have that, that six-month window. And we really saw a, a very low likelihood uh, for these patients developing myelosuppressive effects. And almost the vast majority of these patients were able to receive uh, their intended dose of, of ataxane. So I do think there is that a little bit of that specialty variation. The other aspect, depending upon where you are in the world, is who is administering the radium-223. It's either going to be administered by a, a nuclear medicine radiologist or a radiation oncologist in the UK, clinical oncologist. And I think sometimes there are some you know, barriers to entry regarding just that uh, the, the logistics of implementation. You know, as, as we all know, the more th approved life prolonging therapies patient can receive, they almost universally do better. So for me, when there's a window of opportunity to, for bone predominant disease, no visceral metastases, as the label would indicate, and for a patient who you have with MCRPC who is progressing on a prior um, docetaxel taxane regimen when they're MCSPC, uh, or if they're uh, MCRPC and you're looking for first or second line treatment, uh, you know, I think there's a, there are really data that supports 
layered use of an androgen receptor pathway inhibitor and then instituting uh, radium. It still requires, I think, very importantly, that full multidisciplinary discussion. I completely agree. That's a great point, Neil. And thanks for covering, uh, helping us understand all that real world evidence. We've also seen promising data in terms of the combination of radium-223 with cipulosal T. There are a number of ongoing randomized trials investigating radium-223 in combination with other treatments, which will provide further insight into options such as the COMRAD trial, which is looking at the combination of radium-223 with the PARP inhibitor, Olaparib, and the DORA trial, where radium-223 is being investigated in combination with docetaxel in patients with MCRPC. So, Tanya, we've heard a lot about the various options for patients with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. A lot of data thrown at us over this past, you know, discussion. Boil it down and make it simple for us with regards to where you feel radium fits in the treatment of these patients. Well, that's the million-dollar question, of course. And patients often want to know, what is the best treatment for me right now? And we don't always have that answer. We don't have clinical trials that compare each of our therapies against each other or sequence A versus B versus C, right? So I like a lot of what Neil said in that, you know, if there's a lot of bone involvement and there has been in the past, maybe some lymph node or soft tissue involvement that happens to be under very good control. And what is active now is the bone. I do consider positioning radium before chemotherapy because I worry that down the road, there might be too much soft tissue involvement and I won't have the opportunity to use this agent, which I know will prolong life and will delay skeletal symptomatic events. So, you know, I try to look at the whole patient's journey when I'm choosing. Um, I look definitely at how much bone involvement they have, how many symptoms they have, but also I try to look at uh, whether the future might um, limit uh, their options. We don't want to close any doors for our patients. Sometimes that does involve also looking at the clinical trials that we have around uh, and whether choosing chemo or choosing radium might impact clinical trial eligibility. My goal, just like Neil mentioned, is really for my patients to get as many of these life-extending therapies as possible. Now, Neil also touched on something that I thought was very interesting about the nuts and bolts and why some people might or might not choose radium. And it might have to do with who's delivering it and whether that makes it difficult for the primary treating physician, such as Neil or myself, to maintain a good contact and good understanding of what's happening with the patient. How does that work at your institution or what have you heard out in the community about who's delivering radium and how to help that process work smoothly? Sure. You know, I think Neil brings up a great point. And it's a little unfortunate, the fact that, you know, that type of access or relationship leads to a difference in how it's the drug is used, rather than the data driving how we use the drugs. The unique aspect of radiopharmaceuticals, at least in the US, is you need certain licensing and credentialing in order to administer this. And typically, it's usually a nuclear medicine trained a physician or a radiologist that administers it, or it's a radiation oncologist uh, who administers the drug. You know, in the end, what we're hoping to do is improve access in, in a variety of ways, and I think it's important. But even more importantly, I think this idea of multidisciplinary care needs to needs to take greater shape, and it actually has to sort of be 
alive in all of our different cancer programs. And, you know, whether you're a urologist or a medical oncologist, that relationship that you have with the person who's going to be your radiopharmaceutical go-to person needs to be strong. And it's the requirement for that relationship is only going to increase over the next few years as nuclear imaging increases in utilization and as we have more therapies to offer our patients as well. So in, in a lot of ways, I feel like nuclear medicine or and ra- ra- nuclear medicine needs to be the fourth pillar in any GU or prostate cancer program. So uh, I think things are going to get better. And, I, and hopefully over time, when we have Neil back on, his comment will be that, you know, the practice patterns are the same, whether you're a urologist or a medical oncologist, patients are getting the right drug at the right time. What other nuts and bolts kind of question, leveraging your expertise? I hear different things about what patients are told about their um, radioactivity and what they should do in the 24 or 48 hours after a treatment dose. What's your standard counseling? You know, overall, radium-223 when it comes to radiation safety is much, much uh, safer than some of the other therapies we've used in the past, such as uh, radioactive iodine or or whatnot in other disease states. Uh, In general, what we tell patients is, you know, practice good hygiene. Most of the radioactivity is either excreted in the urine or excreted in in your bowel. And as long as you practice good hygiene, there actually aren't very many restrictions. And that's one of the beauties of this drug is you can go about living your life. You can go to your grandkids' birthday party soon after, right after, as long as you practice good hygiene. And so for men, we recommend using the toilet and sitting down every time you use a toilet. And we also recommend that you flush multiple two to three times just to make sure that radioactivity gets into the sewer system as fast as possible. But overall, I think that's been one of the great aspects of this is that radiation safety is much more easily managed. But we do work closely with our radiation safety officer because we want to be prepared that we're handling it correctly. And should there be a spill or should there be an incident that we're prepared to provide the patient with the right advice and handle that situation appropriately? And what about if your patient happens to need uh, straight catheterization to urinate? Is there any special advice there? You know, it's it, again, it's just about practicing good hygiene and making sure that, you know, that material goes into the sewer system as cleanly as possible with, with as little contamination. But whenever we have those instances, we do engage our radiation safety officer because the patients will feel more comfortable hearing from them and they know they have a sort of a higher level expert to help them with some of these more challenging scenarios. Well, Philip, thanks for a great discussion today. Thanks, Tanya. It's been a, a, a real pleasure. This GU Connect podcast was brought to you by core to ed Independent Medical Education. Please visit guconnect.info for more information.